name is Tyler Bovitz, and welcome back to the fifth Sunday in Lent for the week of April 3rd, 2022. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to dig into this week's podcast, and I'm excited because what happened? We've suddenly gotten to April. We're suddenly in this month of movement, and especially in the northern part of the northern hemisphere, we start usually feeling like spring, and I know this last week where I'm at, we got a nice little snowfall where snow is trying to hang on, but we know in this case that it is going to change. It's going to move on. We're going to eventually have spring here. It just might be delayed for a day or two here as the snow is covering the ground, but I also know as things continue to warm up, that that will soon change and that will move us forward into something new. But it leads really well into the question that I had for you last week, which was, where do you need to change? And I think this is a hard question. It's a question that we don't like necessarily acknowledging. It's acknowledging that things are changing around us and that we have to be willing to change our opinion. It's amazing how, as people, we're willing to grow and change our opinions and thoughts on things, but especially when we start looking at society-wide, it's a much more difficult task. It's a much bigger uphill challenge to be able to acknowledge and recognize that, yeah, maybe we need to change. And I think it's one of the things right now that's confronting the church in a lot of ways is acknowledging that the way that we have done things isn't helping things anymore and that we have to be willing and able to acknowledge that there might be new things that need to be done. And I think the hard thing on top of that, too, is acknowledging that each context is different. There might be things that we might be able to see and see similarities, but then also realizing that it's not going to be able to be mimicked in the exact same way every place. And that's a humbling thing that we all need to be able to learn. It's the same thing within business, too. We can't exactly duplicate a business model somewhere else because you have different people involved and how different people are going to see things. And so it's this idea of how we have to be willing and able to adapt and change because we're made that way. And I think we'll start to even see in the text this week of how God has intended us to continue to be looking forward. And I think our tendency is to look back. And the problem is it's not necessarily bad to look back, but that we hold on to the past and we want to cling on to it. Like I talked about last week, the Chris Ray song, why does the past always seem safer? Maybe because at least we know we made it. That that doesn't help us. In fact, it holds us back. So let's just jump into it. The Old Testament text, the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 to 21. And this is looking at and considering how God has done these amazing things for the tribe of Israel at this point. But I really like verse 18. Do not remember the things of former or the things of old. I am about to do a new thing that springs forth. You do not perceive it. Do you? I'm about to do a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This idea of, yes, look what I have done. But yet, and as it kind of continues here, creation even acknowledges that I continue to move forward and that new things happen. And so accept it. Accept the newness. Accept realizing that new things are about to happen. 
the people whom I form for myself so that I might declare my praise by making a new thing, coming from verse 21. The psalm this week is Psalm 126, and one of the things I have to quickly plug, there was a little bit of discussion in Working Preacher this last week that I really enjoyed, and especially that I look at the NRSV, the Newly Revised Standard Version. This text is very interesting because the first three verses can be read in the past tense, but how it's written in the original language, it could be also translated as future tense. So I'm going to read these here, these first three verses, but then remember that this can also be in the future text. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths was filled with laughter and our tongue with joy, with shouts of joy. Then it was said among nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we rejoiced. So instead of has could be translated to will. And it's this interesting text of how God has both done things in the past for us, but also things in the future for us. And I think it's something that we don't, especially we love thinking about and contemplating the things that God has done of old, and we don't always bring it to that God is doing things for us. And that's what's so beautiful is that, yes, look at what God has done and look at how God does do these things, but then realizing in that same breath that God's still doing that. And it's allowing us to imagine and look for and anticipate where God is actually going and moving and expecting that to happen. The second reading or New Testament text is from Philippians chapter 3 verses 4b to 14. Paul here lays out what he has been in talking about how he became a Pharisee, how he became one of these leaders and how he had followed everything according to the law. But then realizing that that isn't what makes Paul, that isn't what God is creating Paul to be, is to look back. That God is still doing and still creating and still making and that God is still moving. So we have to keep looking forward. We have to keep reaching for that goal of Jesus that is continuing to move forward. It's not reaching back. It's realizing and looking for where God is now. And in this point, Paul also then talking about then sharing that, that we share in the death and resurrection of Christ because of what happened. But it's also recognizing that then we're still striving for what Christ is for us. The gospel text this week is out of John. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. So now we're having a little shift, a little change up here that we're suddenly getting thrown John this week. And I feel like for this text, especially if you're preparing for it, read chapter 11 and read beyond this text. Here's why. Chapter 11, we get John's take of the raising of Lazarus. And so now here we have, starting in chapter 12, Jesus returning to the house of Lazarus. We have Martha doing what she does best and preparing a meal. And we know from kind of the history past, this is something that she does very well. She serves. She really does a good job serving. Mary then takes a 
costly perfume of nard, which I'll attach some links down below. It's a type of spike flower, and it's still around today. It's from like the India, Nepal, China region, so it would have been actually quite a ways to be able to import something like this. So yes, that's why it would have been very expensive, and the house is filled with this fragrance as she is anointing his feet with it. And I will say it is a very strong fragrance. I got a whiff of it this last week. Judas the Iscariot is then the one who will betray him is kind of asking, why would you spend 300 denarii on this instead of giving it to the poor? John then kind of gets this little analysis here in verse 6 on how Judas is the one who is the treasurer and is a thief. Jesus then kind of puts him aside and states that, yep, she bought this for my burial, but she is realizing essentially that she will not always have me and the poor will always be with you, which we need to get into a little bit here. I think this is not necessarily stating that we need to always have poor in our communities, but she's acknowledging that Jesus is in a dangerous situation and she's not sure how much longer Jesus will be with them. And so why not honor them before he's gone? And the reason I say that is the following verses after this talk about how the Pharisees are not only wanting Jesus dead, but kind of hilariously coming from this side, Lazarus they want dead. The man who had just been raised from the dead, they want to kill again. But that they're looking to do this and then it moves into the text kind of like what we'll get with Palm Sunday next week, that this is coming that they're anticipating this. So, a lot going on, a lot to break down. But before we do that, we have to talk about how faith and science come together. Before we do that, we have to do our shameless plugs for Working Preacher. If you haven't checked out Working Preacher, I'd highly recommend it between their Sermon Brainways podcast, their commentaries, their discussions. Since I'm not an ordained minister, I really enjoy checking out and working with Working Preacher. I know this last week they only had three biblical scholars, but they have three to four biblical scholars talking on their Working Preacher podcast, along with having commentaries and discussions not only this year from other biblical scholars, but then they've gone through the cycle multiple times so that one isn't really speaking to you, go through their back catalog and see the last time these texts came up and you'll get a different biblical scholar along with the discussions that they have over there. If you haven't checked out Working Preacher, I can't recommend it high enough. Second of all, if you haven't checked out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from the Divinity School at Vanderbilt, I'd highly recommend checking that out. I really enjoy looking at their text. This is what I use on a week-to-week basis to look at the text. But one of the things that really separates them, in my opinion, is having the art section. Being able to look at how different people have interpreted these texts artistically throughout time and space is really helpful. And so if you haven't checked out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library, I'd highly recommend that also. Being able to recognize that God is still moving while not clinging on to the past is difficult. And I think part of the reason that it's difficult is even between in human life, how often do we do that? How often do we really spend the time to acknowledge people who've made impact? How often do we hear these stories of what people did or the impact that they had on people at funerals? And I'm not saying that that isn't appropriate, but my question then becomes, is did they ever hear that when they were living? If you look at this text, Lazarus opening up his home when Jesus is a wanted man is showing that care. Martha 
caring for him, even though, again, they can be guilty by association by what's going on at this moment in John's gospel, serves him. Mary had this perfume that she had bought in preparation of assuming at some point he will die, lavishes it then on him. Isn't that amazing? Again, this moment where it's high stress, high pressure, these moments where they could be guilty by association, they welcome Jesus in. How many times do we really spend the time to acknowledge those people? This last week, as I was looking and thinking about this text, one of the things that came to mind was the Nobel Prize. And I'll attach links down below. This is kind of a bit of, I've learned, a controversial award. There's lots of discussions where there's some definite things that need to change. One, there hasn't been enough women recognized. Two, there hasn't been enough people of color recognized. And three, depending on how you're reading the will, there's definitely things that we have modified to our convenience that isn't exactly what the prize was all about. But first, before we even get there, we need to understand who was Alfred Nobel. And how do we even get to this place? Alfred Nobel overall was a fairly quiet man, especially in his early life. As a child, had gone through illness and definitely was kind of kept indoors to make sure he stayed well and kind of isolated himself in a lot of ways. And as he grew and slowly came out of that shell a little bit, he had always kept this interest in obtaining knowledge and tinkering around with things and had a bit of an inventive self that he picked up probably from his father who had been a failed entrepreneur a couple times and multiple times throughout his life kind of rose and fall quite a few times. The biggest things that Alfred Nobel really got known for is being able to harness the explosive power of nitroglycerin. And nitroglycerin had been discovered, but it was very, very powerful. But people just hadn't figured out how to be able to control it, to be able to really be able to utilize it well and effectively and most of all safely. Nobel figured that out along with figuring out how to make blasting caps and so was able to take nitroglycerin and make it into dynamite. Now, there is a little controversy on how Nobel got to this point of near the end of his life coming up with the idea of the Nobel Prize. And I think there's a couple contributing factors that I'm going to kind of bring together. One of which was the death of his brother in 1888. And because of the invention of dynamite and then actually making subsequent products after it that were more explosive and safer... And part of the reason that Nobel had this passion of doing this is he had always been a pacifist. He figured if we could harness the power of this and see the explosive power of this, that yes, we could use it in mining and things like that, but it'd also be this weapon of war that would prevent war, that would prevent us from going to war of, look at how this is able to blow up hundreds of people. Maybe we should avoid that. But when his brother died in 1888, there were papers that published it wrong and said that he had died. And in there, there were people who called him the merchant of death. Sounds semi-familiar. If you've followed the Marvel movies and Tony Stark and Iron Man, they kind of label as the merchant of death. And this really bugged Nobel. Especially when you're thinking about that this is something that you were 
working on to try to become a pacifist. And that's not how it's being used. It's in fact being used in a totally different way. That this is then being harnessed in a way that hurts everything that you have been about. One of the former assistants that he had, kind of a secretary of sorts, was Bertha von Suter. And they had kept in touch over their life for over 20 years. And Suter had kind of gotten involved with the peace movement and kind of initially reluctantly, but over time also was in the ear of Nobel through letters and being together in different times that helped Nobel in this period of time, the last decade, less than a decade of his life, to rewrite his will. And part of rewriting his will was coming up with these praises, but part of the idea being that these things will help us move to a more pacifistic society where we're getting away from war. It took five years after his death to get the first prize out in 1901. And as we know on this side of history, we've definitely had a couple literal world wars in between there. But I think it's also that moment of one of the things that is neat about the Nobel, which has been super controversial, is that you have to be thought to be alive when it's announced. There's been one person that was thought to be alive that afterward died before the presentation. But that also meant that there's different people who didn't get awarded that potentially should have gotten awarded. And there's, again, like I stated, and I'll have a video down below, there's things that are looked at with the Nobel that what some of the initial intent or thought of the initial intent was and how we've kind of moved beyond it in certain ways. But I think part of what makes the Nobel the Nobel is recognizing before people are gone the significance of what they have done. The significance of trying to move things forward. And is there flaws with how we're doing it with the Nobel Prize? Sure. Should we maybe be able to recognize that how science works, we're typically working in small groups, and that maybe we need to be able to recognize more than three people in a specific field at any given time? Yeah, I think so. But I think it's also the point of us getting to the point of recognizing that we need to recognize people who are making significant contributions. Maybe not just in the field of science or something of that nature, but maybe in our lives and going through and actually saying it. One of the things that was very striking to me, and I'll attach some links down below, over the last few years, we've lost the last northern white rhino. And there's pictures of this in videos talking about the last interactions of people who kind of protected this rhino and spent time with this rhino trying to help it be able to reproduce to make an amazing conservation recovery. And again, there's been DNA and stuff that have been kept to potentially see if in the future we can do something. But you look at how they're mourning together as the final hours are passing before this rhino dies recognizing that this is kind of the end of the line for potentially probable the end of the line of this species that they were trying to recognize and trying to show the importance of this species of this individual and the powerful movement of how that's hard when you're having to let go of something like that how we often don't do enough until it's basically too late or is too late to recognize how amazing these creatures or things are. One of the other ways that I kind of see this recognition, and I find it actually really interesting, 
I'm a football fan. I'm a Packer fan, which I know is a bit of a controversial statement in certain parts of the world. But this last year, a lot of people figured it was Aaron Rodgers kind of goodbye tour, at least in Green Bay. And in December, he kind of had this interesting interview and it fed into the narrative that we thought was going on. And now, as we are a few months later, we found that maybe he was talking about a different narrative. Aaron Rodgers is a quarterback and a very good player for the Green Bay Packers. And we, at the time, had a very good wide receiver, a person he would throw the ball to, of Devontae Adams. Rodgers comes out and has this press conference and gets into talking about how Devontae Adams is the best player he's ever played with and gives this whole speech and announcement talking about how much he appreciates playing with this great player. As we now are in April, Devontae Adams has been traded to another team for various reasons, and so they probably won't ever play together again in a competitive game. Well, let's take the Pro Bowl out of it. But I think it's actually pretty neat that Rodgers took the time to do this in this moment because he recognized the power of what was happening. He maybe knew more of what was going on behind the scenes than we did. And again, at his point, he wasn't sure what he was doing in a matter of a few months if he was retiring, moving to another team, staying and playing, and maybe they would keep playing together. But maybe he knew more than what we knew. And so he went out of his way to acknowledge the greatness around him. Mary and Martha and Lazarus know and hear what's going on. So they go out of their way to acknowledge and welcome and thank and spend time with their friend Jesus, realizing that the time may be short. Judas then comes up with this statement and Jesus recognizing the moment and recognizing what his friends are doing shuts down Judas and says, are you not understanding the situation? Are you not understanding that this is not always going to be like this? And that they are trying to show their appreciation in a way of saying thank you. It's interesting because when you look at those texts, it's God reminding us in Isaiah and the Psalm that God continues to move. God continues to change. So, yes, be appreciative of what God has done, but also be willing to continue to move also Paul shows that in the Philippians reading, acknowledging where he has been, but then realizing that this is still moving him and calling him to other greater things. That he doesn't get stuck at this is what I have been, but instead, this is what I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be a better follower of Christ. I'm trying to be more like what Christ is calling me to be. I'm trying to become the person that God has called me to be. The Nobel Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it's flawed. But it was a way of trying to recognize the good things that are happening around us and let's acknowledge them before they're gone. And in a way, it's totally changed the narrative of how we perceive Alfred Nobel, especially that side note, to make the Nobel, he had become extremely wealthy with dynamite and these explosives. 94% of his wealth in his death went to that. And part of it was why he wanted to kind of help support, especially at the time where you have more individual scientists and give the cash prize to kind of help with some of the expenses. And again, there's a whole video that I'll attach down below on how maybe that needs to be readjusted because is that really what's happening nowadays? But this idea of let's acknowledge these people, let's show how things have changed and have gotten better and 
let's spend time and thank them. Mary and Lazarus and Martha are all acknowledging them, acknowledging Jesus in a time when they're supposed to be trying to disassociate, but they want to thank him. And yes, it could mean that they get guilty by association, but it's worth the risk. It's their friend. It's this person who has drastically changed their life. It's this person that has made life different, changed priorities, and it's worth acknowledging. So as we are nearing the end of Lent, the question that I have for you is, who do we need to acknowledge? Who do you need to acknowledge? Who do we need to acknowledge? Who do you need to acknowledge? Because those are different. I think one of the things that we do need to work on is not acknowledging them after they're dead. Let's actually spend the time so that they have a moment to be able to treasure what they are. Looking back to what the prodigal son was last week, that whole text, let's have a party and acknowledge who they are and how amazing they are before they're gone. The impact that they've had so that, yes, when we're mourning them, we can also reminisce about this party when we were able to talk with them and hear more of the story. As people, we really struggle with this. We struggle with death. We struggle with acknowledgement. We struggle with the part of being humble. It may be because we need to actually lean into it more. Alfred Nobel had the rude awakening of how people were perceiving him. And he didn't want to be perceived that way. And so through connections that he had made, he comes up with this whole thing. And now we're a century later still talking about his name. And it's associated in a totally different way. That we have to go through and tell the story. Because otherwise, we don't know it. We just recognize the name. And it's totally different than what we knew. Nobel would, I think, appreciate some of that. But I think Nobel also did some pretty amazing stuff when he was alive. Being able to recognize some of the different things and trying to create a weapon that people wouldn't want to use. But that could still be used by civilians in a healthy way. It's pretty amazing. I think it's one of those moments where we do, especially as we're coming out of this pandemic, need to make sure that we are acknowledging the people who have made things possible for us the last two years. Because a lot has changed and there's a lot of people that need to be thanked. And maybe that will actually help with some of the stress that we're all feeling as we're trying to readjust to potentially normal life, letting is the pandemic fully done or not, we're not sure. As we're trying to hold on to the things that we've been doing during the pandemic while trying to go back to what we were and trying to move forward all at the same time, it's getting pretty heavy. And maybe part of that is a 